The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body, it is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown in weakness, it's raised in power, it's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also as it is written, the first man became a living soul, first man Adam became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And so... You read that out loud, and it sounds a little on the crazy side, right? So I'm driving down the road. Uh, This wasn't Pilgrim Radio. It was some other uh, Christian radio station, and the guy starts talking about, this this is just the other day, starts talking about uh, resurrection body, and and he immediately goes to being, uh, like, teleported. And uh, and how how you can how you'll travel in a resurrected body and and um, whether you'd be able to travel through time and how you'll be able to travel space and 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 after about uh, four and a half seconds I couldn't take it anymore and <laughs> I I just turned it off uh, because it's 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 nonsense in the sense that God's word doesn't tell us those kinds of details. And you start thinking about the way sometimes things like a resurrected body are treated, and it ends up being more like science fiction than what the Scripture says. The passage, even though it sounds um, a, a little uh, challenging, is, is not quite as challenging as it seems when, when you go through it in detail. So we get to this section... Basically, how are the dead raised? The answer is bodily, all right? That's going to be, that is the theme of this section. And um, Paul is going to tell us the nature of the resurrection body, all right? Now, he does it in ways that seem a little strange to us, but be that as it may, he has defended the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of Christians, right, which goes back to the question in verse 12, right, 
uh, where there's a flat-out denial that believers are raised. He has, he has defended the resurrection of, that, of believers, and now he's answering, with what kind of body are we going to have? Right? And you see in verse 35, uh, you see this question, and Paul says, but someone will say, now, I, I pretty much assume that, but someone will say, probably is rooted in what Paul knew to be factual about the Corinthian congregation. In other words, I don't think this is just like some sort of wild hypothetical thing. There might be somebody somewhere that might say. I think he actually had knowledge that this is probably one of the things that was being um, said in the Corinthian assembly. Now, if you notice, someone will say, how are the dead raised? You have to understand that as Paul launches into this section in verse 35, this is not an honest question. The question that follows, with what kind of body do they come, is not an honest question. These are the questions of a scoffer. Okay? Have you ever um, been talking to somebody about the, the faith and they, they end up asking you a question that seems so utterly ridiculous to you, but it seems like a gotcha moment for them, right? That's what Paul's dealing with. There, there certainly is a place for honest questions and uh, Ariel and I were reading the other morning in um, in Luke 16 and the um, uh, uh, Lazarus and and uh, the rich man in the bosom of Abraham, and uh, and and she starts asking all these questions because you read that passage and there you know and her first question was, well, can people who are in hell see people who are in heaven? I mean, that's what you're, so there are there are honest questions where you're just trying to wrestle with the text. Paul's not dealing with people that are interested in asking good, honest questions. When, when the first question comes out, how are the dead raised? That basically, it is a, a question that is, so, so explain to me the biological mechanics of resurrection. Okay. The second question, with what kind of body do they come? There's, there's probably a little underlying mockery, the idea of, so what kind of resurrected corpse is the corpse going to be? So Paul is dealing with people that are, that are skeptics, that are scoffers, right? We already know back from verse 12 that they don't believe that Christians are going to be raised at all, right? This is, this is, uh, this is one of those Pharisee-type questions, Right? You remember that the Pharisees would ask Jesus a question. Oh, so we have this really sad story about this guy that marries this woman and, and uh, he dies and doesn't leave her any children. And so, uh, you know, she marries his brother and they don't have any kids and on and on and seven brothers and no kids. And so, uh, Jesus, please tell us in the resurrection, <laughs> which we don't believe in, okay. whose wife will she be? It's the question of a mocker, right? And um, just reminds you just to be careful with the questions of mockers. 
there are times where you answer a fool according to his folly so that he's not wise in his own eyes. And sometimes the the questioner is just a mocker and sometimes you just have to respond with you don't cast your pearls before swine and you don't give what's holy unto the dogs. So they're disputing the credibility of the bodily resurrection, right? This is, uh, I mean, by the way, the Greeks didn't have a notion of bodily resurrection. To them, that was was science fiction. And so Paul, in his uh, his very tactful and uh, loving way, says, You fool! (laughs) Um, You have to love Paul because, um, by the way, Paul will never speak that way to to sincere believers. Paul speaks that way to mockers and scoffers. And when he says, you fool, that is exactly what he's getting at. The word fool here is not your typical word that you see, for instance, where Jesus says, don't call your brother fool in Matthew 5. The idea here is somebody that is utterly ignorant and lacks all sound judgment. You fool. So what makes the fool actually a fool? What makes the fool an, an ignoramus? Well, what makes the fool an ignoramus is that he thinks he can pull a gotcha on God. He thinks he actually has outsmarted the Almighty. He thinks that his wisdom is so superlative that he has come up with a question that obviously is going to stumble Christians everywhere. And so Paul says, you fool. Now, this word is used, uh, Ephesians 5.17, don't be foolish, but don't be ignorant, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's used in 1 Peter 2.15, where Peter says that we are to silence the ignorance of foolish men, right? And so this is, in a sense, the same kind of category of, uh, of those Pharisees and Sadducees that would come to Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus actually says to them when they bring up the, the woman who married seven brothers? He says, he says, you are ignorant of the scriptures and do not understand the power of God. That's where most mocking questions come from, is an ignorance of what the Bible really says and an ignorance of the power of God. And so... Paul's now actually going to, uh, probably not so much for the fool's sake, but for those who may be coming under the sway of the fool, begins to uh, unfold this uh, question, and he he begins to answer. And so uh, notice he says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So what he's going to do is he's going to give two analogies that, that in a sense show the reasonableness of the resurrection. All right, so the first argument goes basically just as simple as this. Um, what you sow must die first, all right? 
Now, we, we know that seed doesn't technically die, but from, uh, from an ancient perspective, you took this, this seed that looked absolutely lifeless, and you did what with it? Well, we'd say you plant it, but think of it in terms of you bury it, okay? And so the idea is, is that what you bury in the ground dies before it comes back to life, okay? And that was a very common uh, perspective. Jesus actually uses that very imagery of himself in John chapter 12, verse 24, that unless a, a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, right? And he was talking about himself, okay? And so for Paul, he just sort of appeals to this, uh, this common perspective. And uh, so one commentator puts it like this, the, the, the life through death principle is common for seeds in nature, so it's reasonable for the corpses of believers, and so Paul simply just makes the point that when you put something in the ground, you put it in the ground dead, and you know that it's going to bring forth life. Okay? And that, verse 37, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. And so there's a, <laughs> Paul's, Paul's argument even though it sounds a little strange to us, basically something like this. You don't take a full-grown apple tree and plant it in the ground. You take an apple seed and plant it in the ground, and out of that comes the apple tree, all right? This is the way that it works, all right? And so he makes the analogy. So it is with, with uh, you know, our body. And then Verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And so the idea is, is that what is sown, okay, what is planted into the ground, what is buried into the ground, comes out transformed. Okay? I mean, it is sort of remarkable the way that God's creation works, right? You take, you know, we've got like 1,800 pounds of squash out there. And uh, Weller's just put, you know, just buried some seeds in the ground and Titus probably watered them. And all of a sudden, boom, this is what happens, right? This is, this is just the way, in other words, this is the way creation works, okay? There is a, um, a transformed product, okay? So it's transformed, but it's transformed according to God's purpose, and this is sort of an interesting thing. So you just take a little grain of wheat, you, you bury it in the ground, and then comes this, uh, this, this stalk with, with, with wheat on it, or you plant an apple seed, and out comes an apple tree. And guess what? You would never guess by looking at that seed what it's going to be, but God's already determined what it's going to be. God's already determined what the transformed uh, end result is going to be. And so here is this, this in a sense, this, this illustration for, uh, from nature, and it's true of believers. The transformation of what is sown into the ground is simply according to God's purpose and God's plan. All right. Now, here, here's sort of the more challenging part. You get to th- verses 39 through 41. 
And, and I, I misread this text up until today, and I'm not exactly sure that I'm reading it right, but I changed my, my mind on it. So Paul then makes this next argument. He says, all flesh, verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There's also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. Then he goes about to the sun and the moon and the stars and so forth. So I always read this when Paul's talking about uh, different bodies. I always thought that his argument was actually somewhat simple. There are different bodies, and so you observe there are these heavenly bodies, which I took to be like resurrected bodies, and then there are earthly bodies, which would end up just being unresurrected bodies. And, of course, then I would think of the uh, case in point where Jesus appears to his disciples in Luke chapter 24, and uh, and they think he's a spirit. And, of course, he said, this is post-resurrection. He says he's not a spirit. And what's his proof that he's not a spirit? What's that? Okay. He actually does something very specific. He eats. He eats, and he actually makes that the point. A spirit doesn't eat. Okay. So, um, so I always thought that that's what Paul was getting at, but I think, actually, that I was reading it wrong. I think that what Paul's doing is he's actually appealing here, in a sense, to the days of creation. Okay. So, so, so follow this back again. So you have... First of all, seed-bearing plants, which he's already mentioned, verses 36 to 38, um, which, of course, is day three of creation. And then you have human flesh and animal flesh and bird flesh and fish flesh, which are days six and five. And then you have heavenly bodies... So, so, so just track with me. So instead of heavenly bodies being resurrected bodies, not certainly probably a play on words, okay? But if you have day three, day six, day five, and then you get to heavenly bodies, and then you get to sun, moon, stars... The heavenly bodies is probably a reference to the sun, moon, and stars, thus the fourth day of creation. Now, Paul's point is actually is, is still relatively simple, and that is that there's different kinds of flesh, so in other words, different stuff that's sown into the ground, all right? But there also is... Um, Differing degrees of glory, even within the creation order. So, for instance, even the, uh, the creational order of, let's say, birds and fish, and then animals and human beings, even within the creational order, there are differing degrees of glory according to the nature of 
of the thing. Okay? So, um, anybody ever, uh, like, run over a, a jackrabbit? So, you could say the flesh of a jackrabbit, all right? You, how many of you cried when you ran over the jackrabbit? You're ruining my illustration. Yeah, so, all right. So, we know you have a very sensitive heart. (laughs) I smashed, I, I ran over a jackrabbit one time outside of Austin, and I had Zach, we were gonna go meet Don Strachan, uh, down in uh, King Canyon, and I had Zach with me, and he was about five years old, and I hit that jackrabbit, and it got stuck up in my wheel well, and it just splattered blood all alongside my white truck, and I got out, and I look, and Zach's like, Dad, that is so cool, okay? <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't cry. We didn't, you know, uh, anybody ever catch a fish and then eat it, okay? Yeah? Um, so anybody ever, um, kidnap their neighbor and eat them? You don't do that, right? Anybody ever, we're in America, not some other place. Anybody ever trap their neighbor's dog and eat their neighbor's dog? Okay. So there's different flesh that differs in glory. The flesh of fish, the flesh of a jackrabbit, the, 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 you know, but you start getting, there's, there's more honor, there's more glory as you, with, as you work yourself up the food chain, all right? And then, then you get to heavenly bodies and you even look there and what has, in terms of the, the heavenly bodies in the sky, what has the greatest glory? We're not talking, we're just talking sun, moon, and stars. It's, in, in a sense, the sun has this, the, this, this magnificent glory, right? The brightness of it, the warmth of it. it you know, the, the moon has a reflective glory, right? And stars, which are light years away, um, have... Uh, uh, less glory. And this is, this is simply Paul's point, is that in the creation order, there are just different levels of glory. And so now what he's going to do, and notice the way that he does this in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. Now, what he's going to do here is he's not going to say that there are different levels of glory among the resurrected, what he's going to say is there are, there's two different levels of glory. The body that you have now and the body that you will receive. Now, the way that he does that is by, by giving, in a sense, these four contrasts. And so, in a sense, what he's doing is is he is now applying the principle of greater glory to resurrection bodies. So notice the the contrast. Verse 42, it is sown 
Okay, so it's, it's planted, it's buried, perishable, it's raised, imperishable. What has the greater glory? The imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. So so Paul's argument is just simple, and that is there there are truths that are woven into creation that already illustrate what God is going to do with us. You do believe that creation is a revelation, right? We talk about natural revelation. We talk about um, general revelation. I think that actually if we had eyes to see, we would see more of God in the created order than we actually see. And people that were far more steeped in Scripture and far more creative than us in times past could look at creation as a window of theological truth. Okay? So, think about these these contrasts. It's sown perishable. What's perishable? Well, anything that dies is perishable. So, right now, you know, you can feel it, right? This thing that you're in is perishable. Okay? It has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. It is going to die. Okay? And... This is just part of the process. This is part of what what, uh, God works into the creation order because of the entrance of sin. And so, perishable. That's me. That's you. Perishable. So, when you finally hit your expiration date, you know what they're going to do to you? They're going to take you out, and they're going to plant you in the ground. It is, it is a sobering thing to do um, a graveside service. And we've had quite a few over these last few months. And you're standing there and You've got that person, we were just, what, last, uh, last Friday, right? A hand, small handful of us went out while they put Elaine Torres' body in the ground. When Elaine died, her mind wasn't functioning body wasn't functioning. She was enduring the ravages of misery and impending death in a fallen world. And then she perished. 
her body perished. And we stood there next to her grave, and they lowered that casket into the ground. Sown. Perishable. Raised. Imperishable. So when you stand there at the grave of a believer, unbeliever, it's a totally different thing, right? Totally different, um, totally different atmosphere, really, when you think about it. Stand there at the, at the graveside of an unbeliever, and you think the last thing the unbeliever wants to hear is the last trump when they'll be raised. What the believer longs to hear is the last trump when they will be raised imperishable. And so we, we say every time, every time I do a graveside, I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, because that is our great hope. The dead in Christ will rise first. And there is this magnificent sense that this body which perished and is sown as perishable, one day will be raised, and it will be raised imperishable. No expiration date. But notice the other contrast Paul makes. It's sown in dishonor. You know, Paul describes that in Philippians 3.20 is these lowly bodies. Um, These bodies, you know there's a whole Christian theology of your body. You know that. And there's a there's a, a paradox with Christian theology of the body. And that is on the one hand, the body is good because it's created by God, right? So, so we don't have, Christians don't believe that the body is the prison house of the soul. The body is a gift from God, but because of the entrance of sin and death into the world, it is now a lowly body or a, a body that has been dishonored by sin and the process of dying. And so it's sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. I take that to mean it is raised glorified. It is sown in weakness. So what what is the condition of this present body which God has given to us, and the, the answer is, is because of the entrance of sin and death into this world, this is a body of weakness. Okay. I was amazed listening to Isaiah's um, spectacular physical displays at, uh, at, at, at the, uh, uh, what was it that you went to? for the NHP, where you did the physical, right? And, you know, and he's like running 18 miles in four minutes. And, and, I mean, it's like Superman, right? But here's, here's, and then I think of 
like I think of Charlie. Okay? If Isaiah's on this end of the spectrum, Charlie's on this end of the spectrum. Okay? Lots of health problems, a lot of physical suffering, right? But guess what? That's a body of weakness, just as sure as this is a body of weakness, and that is a body of weakness. What makes our weakness is not temporary bursts of health and strength. We are born in weakness, and we live in weakness, and we die in weakness. You won't always be able to run as fast as you did last weekend. Trust me. And so it's sown, right? This is suffering. This is sickness. Isn't that one of the awful things about getting old? Is you start to realize how weak this physical frame really is. Paul says it's sown in weakness and it's raised in power. This body which is sown in weakness ends up being raised with indomitable strength, enduring strength, Not strength that fades away, but enduring strength. And so the juxtaposition of being sown in weakness and being raised in strength gives you a picture of what this resurrection body is going to look at. Then notice this. It is sown as a natural body. And this, this next phrase gets people, and it's raised a spiritual body. You do understand that the minute you read spiritual as immaterial, you've just denied the entirety of Paul's argument up to this point. Your future resurrection body is not an immaterial thing. In fact, it will be a glorious physical thing. So what does Paul mean by spiritual? Well, it helps by comparing it to natural. You can put it like this. This is actually, Gordon Fee suggests this. This is great. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a supernatural body. Because for Paul, spiritual doesn't mean immaterial, right? We've gone over this 20 times. For Paul, spiritual is not this this vague, amorphous thing that, you know, if somebody said to Paul, I'm really spiritual, and they meant like like new agey Shirley MacLaine spiritual, he wouldn't have known what they were talking about. Because for Paul, spiritual is always capital S spiritual. That is having to do with the Holy Spirit. So a spiritual body is a body that has been raised and empowered by the Holy Spirit himself. By the way, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, where Paul says that the same spirit 
that raised Jesus up from the dead dwells in you and he will give life, the spirit will give life to your mortal body. So, this spiritual body is the body that will belong to the world of the spirit. It will belong to the final age. It will belong to um, that glorified, imperishable world which is to come. Now, I don't have time to go into this in too much detail, but let me just say that there's an analogy, there's a parallel between uh, the new creation and the resurrection. So, you do understand that the the new heaven and the new earth is not a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. It's a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. It's a recreated. The, the, The reason, by the way, this is so absolutely vital is that um, the first creation is not a failure. The first creation is what's going to be redeemed. And if God is going to redeem this cosmos, how is he going to do it? He's going to redeem it by renewing it, transforming it into what it should be. Same thing is true of these bodies. You lay these bodies in the ground. This is the sort of the language of the old timers. This self-same body will be raised imperishable. Now, to be sure, I know what some of you are thinking. Ha, rats, I thought I was going to get a better model, right? Uh, Trade this one in and, you know, just get something better. I was going to go to a pint, from a pinto to an escalade. Okay. No, God's going to resurrect this body. It'll be transformed. It will be glorified. It will be better than ever before. But it will be the body that was put into the ground. Now, some of you say, well, what about people that get burned up or what about people? So you, you, you do have to understand that this is the same kind of silliness that starts this very, the beginning of this very section. Okay? The God who said, let there be light, is not going to have any problem recreating your molecular structure into a new glorified body. You know, I've used this illustration before because it's so graphic. If you fall off of a ship in the ocean and you get eaten by a shark, you know what you're going to be? You're going to be shark poop at the bottom of the ocean. Okay. Let's say you get buried next to an apple tree. And then the horse comes and eats the apples. And then leaves his horse apples about, you know, 50 yards away. Guess what? God will not have a problem raising you from the dead. If it bothers you, I just say, you don't understand the power of God, right? 
So here is this, this glorious picture of, of, of what God's going to do with us. Now, I don't know how fast we'll all be able to run. And I don't know how, if I'll be able to, uh, you know, be like here one second and there the next second. All of that in, ends up being absolutely irrelevant. Here's the important part. I'll be imperishable. I'll have a body that will never wear out. I'll have a body that will never die. I will have a body that will be fully equipped for me to be able to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth forever. You do understand what happens to you if you're in this body and you enter into the immediate presence of God. Something has to happen. Some massive transformation has to happen in mind and heart and will and body in order to equip us to stand in the presence of Almighty God. And that's what Paul's getting at. Now that brings us to the last section, which is magnificent. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, that which is of the spirit, is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. Does the ESV say earthy? They do something different. What? The first man is from the dust, dusty. (laughs) I hope not. The second man is from heaven. So what do they say? The first man is from the dust. And then how does it describe him? A man. Okay. Yeah. I love you, brother. No, you're not. The first man is from the earth, earthy. I like that, actually. I like that, right? Because that, that just describes some of you already. Second man's from heaven, as is the earthy, right? So also are those who are earthy. And, is, and as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, will also bear the image of the heavenly. So what's going on here? So what Paul does is as Paul, Paul brings this, um, the, the, the argument on what kind of body to a close by focusing on the two atoms. You, you do know, by the way, that, that the idea of the first atom, the protos atom, and the last atom, the eschatos atom, that the two atoms actually are this, are this mammoth theological structure by which Paul views all of humanity. First Adam, last Adam. Okay. By the way, first Adam, first Adam, last Adam corresponds to all kinds of stuff. Death, life, law, grace, flesh, spirit. Right? You have all of these magnificent contrasts that are, that are rooted in the two-atom theology of Paul. And so, 
Has Paul already mentioned the two Adams? And the answer is yes. In Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. We saw that in 2022. So this is what he says about the first or the protos. So think of a prototype. Um, The first or the protos man, Adam, became a living soul. So what's Paul doing? Paul's talking about now, so, so, so for Paul, remember, um, the last time I said, uh, you know, th- for Paul, timing is, is everything. And so for Paul, he's always asking, what time is it? And some little rascal in the back said, it's lunchtime. All right. You know, that was, you remember that? So for Paul, there's, there's always, uh, everything is, Everything is history. Everything is time. Everything is chronology, okay? Paul is, of course, Paul is a great systematic thinker, but Paul is a, a, a timeline thinker, okay? So for Paul, the two atoms represent two major epochs on the continuum of time. So you have this, this first atom, and this first atom becomes a living soul. And so where does this come from? Well, it comes right from Genesis 2-7. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, hence earthy, all right? And he breathed into Adam the breath of life, okay? Very interesting. God breathes in, the word related to ruach, breathes into Adam, ruach, the breath of life, the ruach of life, and Adam becomes a living nefesh, a living soul, right? So Adam, at that point in Genesis 2-7, is a human being with a human nature who is also a living soul. By the way, uh, there is a distinction between body and soul, but a lot of times in Scripture, um, to talk about your life, you just talk about it in terms of, you're a soul, What will a man give for, and our translations often say, for his life and its soul? You don't have a soul. You are a soul. The first Adam became a living soul. Now, by the way, when Paul's talking about this, he's talking about Adam, the first Adam, and not in terms of his fallenness, but in terms of his original creation as an image bearer of God. Paul's going to talk about Adam in Romans 5, but the way he talks about Adam in Romans 5 is in light of Adam's sin. Here, it is just by virtue of Adam's creation. And so the image is this first man, the the first epoch, symbolized by the man, is natural. Adam comes first. Um, the, the, the one from the earth comes first. And so, guess what happens to him after the fall? From, from dust you came and to dust you will return, right? And so, he then does, after the fall, what is natural to everyone. He dies. And Paul says this, so at Adam, by the way, historical person, Adam, 
Don't believe all this nonsense that Adam wasn't a real historical person. You don't have Adam as a real historical person. You undermine the, uh, the whole concept of the federal headship of Adam. You undermine the entire concept of the fall of the human race. All of us have borne the image of the earthy. We come into this world as sons and daughters of Adam. Just as we see in Genesis chapter 5, and Adam and Eve uh, had a son, Seth. And Seth does what? Bears the image of Adam. Seth's son bears his image. His son bears his image. On and on and on. By the way, punctuated by what phrase in Genesis 5? And he died. That's the image of the earthy. We were made in the image of the first Adam, and it's an earthy image. It's a natural image, and it is also an image which was fallen, which we inherited as fallen. So that's, that's you know what that is? That's perishable. That's dishonor. That's weakness. That's natural. This is why Paul's doing this. Now we get to the last Adam, the eschatos Adam. Okay? Now, uh, when we get to Romans 5, 12 and following, which we're not very far away from, we'll actually see why Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. But let me just say, both are the federal head of their race. Okay? Now, Notice the way this is described. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual man, that's Christ, is not first. Why? Because you have to go like this. First creation and then new creation. So first Adam and then last Adam, right? So for Paul, that chronology is absolutely non-negotiable. And so the natural comes first and then the supernatural. And that second Adam is not from the earth. Where's the second Adam from? From heaven. And then here's what Paul says. And just as you bore the image of the earthy, you'll bear the image of the heavenly. You you know that's a reference to your future resurrection. That's what it is. It is the future resurrection. Now, what do we make of this this weird phrase? He became a life-giving spirit, all right? Um, so did Jesus rise from the dead and become a spirit? No, right? In fact, Luke 24, he already says a spirit doesn't sit down and eat broiled fish with you guys. Okay. So what in the world do we make of this phrase? All right. Well, first, the first thing to do is to see the contrast. Adam becomes a living soul. Christ becomes 
life-giving spirit, all right? The first man, the protos Adam, anticipates the last man, the eschaton Adam. So original creation points to new creation. And so if some of you remember when we studied the book of Genesis in those early chapters, what did I say about Genesis? I said this repeatedly. The last things, eschatology, are as the first things, protology. So... One writer that I really like puts it. He says, the alpha of human history anticipates the omega. So why does Paul call him a life-giving spirit? First of all, the resurrection is the work of the spirit. Right? Don't have time to look at all these texts in detail, but... uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, right? The Spirit does what? Gives life. Okay? Romans eight eleven. the same Spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And, of course, the very opening of Romans, Romans 1, 4, Jesus is actually raised from the dead and declared to be the Son of God by the Spirit of holiness, which is another way to talk about the Holy Spirit. So what happens is that Christ in both his resurrection and his ascension is the one who now gives life from the dead through his spirit and will raise the dead through his spirit. So here's Jesus raised by the power of the spirit By the way, resurrection is a part of the age to come, which is the age of the Spirit, all right? According to Old Testament eschatology, Jesus is raised up from the dead by the Spirit, becomes the quintessential life-giving Spirit in that right now, what does he do? He raises people spiritually from the dead, and one of these days will raise them physically from the dead. Hence, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is the life-giving Spirit spirit. So you have the image of Adam that we were made in, and then you have the image of Christ, which we will be raised in. And so Paul's argument is, is in one sense, very simple, in another sense, incredibly profound. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only the guarantee of your resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very prototype of your resurrection. You will be conformed into his image as the last Adam resurrected from the dead and glorified. That is the inheritance of the people of God. Now, is there anything that's going on right now in terms of... I can say one day I'll bear the image of the last Adam, the heavenly, right? That's when I'm resurrected and glorified. But is anything happening in me right now? I'm glad you asked. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. All right? 
I only got four minutes to do this. We got to hurry. Ephesians chapter four. Somebody read just the first few lines of 24 and put on the new self. You know, that is absolutely horrible. You know why? Because Paul doesn't use the word self. He says, put on the new man. Remember what I said about Paul's mammoth theological construct of the first Adam and the last Adam. Guess who the old man is? It's Adam. Guess who the new man is? It's Christ. New self does not begin to connect to the idea of what my life is in Christ. New self makes it sound like I went to a a, a Dr. Phil seminar or something. New man, put on the new man, that is put on life in Christ. Put off the old man, what does that mean? Put off life in Adam. Is this like clicking with anybody or are you just like, eh, okay. All of a sudden, this, is, this verse is transformed when you realize it's new man. Put on the new man, which in the likeness of God, oh, that's image of God language, is it not? Has been created in righteousness and holiness of Truth. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says something very similar. And put on, 3.10, put on the new man, notice this, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so we anticipate, we look forward to putting on the full image of the last Adam, which will happen at the resurrection when we're glorified and our lowly bodies will be brought into perfect conformity with the the very glorified, resurrected state of Jesus Christ himself. And until then, what is God doing? God is renewing the image of Christ in us. He is increasingly and incrementally conforming us to the image of the one who saved us. He is, in other words, your sanctification is put in terms of what? Of increased conformity to the image of Christ who is the image of God. And so... Put on the new man is put on Christ. Because that image is created in holiness and righteousness and truth. And then one day, so until then, heart, mind, right? Conduct, being conformed to the image of Christ. 
But one day, that conformity will engulf the totality of my humanity. That's what's going to happen. That conformity will engulf the totality of my humanity. And the body, this physical body, will be the last part of me to be brought into conformity to the last Adam who's life-giving spirit. And so what's the ultimate goal of your salvation? Romans 8, 29. Those whom he predestined, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brethren. God's purpose in your salvation is to not simply restore you to the image of Adam pre-fall. His purpose is to restore you to the very image of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And so the consummation of our redemption will be the reunification of our souls, which, by the way, are, is, are perfected at death, with our resurrected, glorified bodies, which will be perfected at the second coming. And so those bodies that he gives will have incredible continuity with this body, but will have massive discontinuity. In other words, these bodies will be as better... No, let's see. How should I say this? These bodies will be comparatively better... Our glorified bodies will be comparatively better in the way that Christ is comparatively better than Adam. Your future resurrected glorified body will be as comparatively better to this body as Christ is comparatively better to Adam. So... Paul's going to lay out the implications of that in 50 to 58. Because the implications are huge. So it's a reminder, no matter how little you are, no matter how old you are, no matter how healthy you are, no matter how unhealthy you are. Your destiny as a Christian is not to be perishable, weak, and sown in dishonor. Your destiny as a child of God is to be gloriously conformed to the image of the last Adam, which means you'll be raised imperishable. You will be raised in glory and in power supernaturally forever.
That's the inheritance of God's people. So you want to know why Paul was so vehement in defending it? It's because it's the very consummation of what Jesus Christ died and was raised for. So we look forward to it, do we not? Then we shall be what we should be. And we shall be where we would be. Let's pray. Fathers, as our world falls apart all around us, remind us that our hope is imperishable. And Father, we pray even tonight that you would stir our hearts with just an anticipation of what life in the age to come and the new heavens and the new earth is going to be. Father, we pray that we wouldn't give ourselves to to silly or carnal curiosities, but rather we would focus on what these glorified, resurrected bodies will be able to do in terms of worshiping you and glorifying you and serving you throughout the endless ages. Receive our thanks and our praise tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.